This program of Second Opinion Live was recorded on March 30th, 2011. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Today, we're continuing our focus on the situation in Japan with in-depth explorations on two key aspects of the crisis. The first is radiation. It's the center of global public interest, but consistent and reliable health information is still hard to find in the popular media. Reports fluctuate on how much radiation has been released and how far it might travel. But specific health factors are largely misunderstood, such as the mechanisms of radiation exposure, how we quantify radiation risk, and what level of exposure is just too much. Helping us address these questions will be Dr. John Boyce, Global Authority on Radiation and Health. He serves on the International Commission on Radiological Protection and is the former chief of the Radiation Epidemiology Branch of the National Cancer Institute. Another institute of critical importance in Japan, related in part to the ongoing radiation scare, is mental health. We've seen natural disasters in the U.S. and abroad having long-lasting mental health impacts on entire communities, but the effects of a three-tiered event, from earthquake to tsunami to nuclear fallout, may be devastating. What is the best way to care for those affected, and can some interventions actually cause more harm than good? Commenting on these issues from Japan will be Dr. Tsuyoshi Akiyama, director of the Department of Psychiatry at the Kanto Medical Center in Tokyo, and a member of the World Psychiatric Association. And we'll also talk today with Dr. Evelyn Bromet, psychiatric epidemiologist at Stony Brook University Medical Center in New York. She's an expert on the mental health effects of radiation, such as those seen in the Three Mile Island disaster in 1979 and the Chernobyl nuclear power plant incident in 1986. All that today, coming up on Second Opinion Live. All right, our first guest is Dr. John Boyce. Dr. Boyce is professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and scientific director of the International Epidemiology Institute. He serves on the International Commission on Radiological Protection and is former chief of the National Cancer Institute's Radiation Epidemiology Branch, where he established research projects investigating cancer and other health risks associated with ionizing radiation, even at small exposures. Dr. John Boyce, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Good to have you with us. Nice to be here. Dr. Boyce, there's been escalating hysteria right here in the United States. We all know that, let alone Japan. Just for the reports of radiation detected in air, rainwater, as far away as even our studio here in Chicago. Now, for the sake of our listeners who are starting to hear it from their patients, can you help us break down the radiation risks both here and abroad? Well, certainly the radiation risks here in the United States are trivial and inconsequential. You know, the radiation released has to travel many, many thousands of miles. It's diluted appreciably. And even though they're detected, they're not even at the level of uh, concern, either for health effects or even for regulatory uh, issues. What we, we have monitoring stations across the United States that are so sensitive they can pick up very small amounts of radiation. And so the levels that are being detected are perhaps a millionth of a time uh, amount lower than what we're experiencing right now from the natural sources of radiation. So in other words, we don't have to worry about it. No, we don't. It's just not an issue. It's very, very small. Well, why do you think this is coming up? Do you see this in the media, or is this people just picking this up and making it up themselves? Well, I'm not uh, quite sure on risk perception, but clearly we do uh, monitor radiation across the United States, and we monitor the levels in our water and, uh, and in the air, and so one detects these, and so then it raises an issue that we have detected um, 
radioactive iodine. We have detected some of these exotic gases, xenon-133, at very low levels, and so then they're reported. But I think it's the problem is the risk perception and the interpretation of what this really means. And, you know, I mentioned that we live in this sea of low-level radiation. Um, we're breathing uh, radioactive radon gas right now. Um, the, the water we drink has low levels, naturally, of radium and uh, uranium and thorium. Uh, if you like bananas, that's a, a very uh, strong source of radioactive potassium. And so we, we kind of have a little bit of radiation all the time. Let me backtrack for a second. Why is it radioactive when we talk about potassium levels in bananas, for instance? Okay, yeah, isn't that interesting? It's just, well, uh, uranium, thorium, potassium has been around uh, from day one. Uh, it has a half-life of over a billion years. So potassium-40, most potassium is not radioactive, but there's small components that is, have been a, around from the creation, if you will, and so it's still there, just like uranium and thorium. So there's small amounts. In fact, that's the uh, food. Uh, bananas are the food uh, that have the highest level of radioactivity in them because of the uh, potassium. It's not a large level. Uh, and uh, so you're not we we need to <laughs> I love bananas I keep eating bananas but it it is a level that's measurable if you measured the uh, radioactive potassium in our bodies it's in our muscles right now and so we're surrounded uh with this uh, low level radiation all the time that uh we don't really pay much attention to. This is not fair. Bananas just went to no points on Weight Watchers, and I've been eating them all day long, so now I'm hot. Oh, <laughs> yes, right. 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 It's a, <laughs> you, get, you get 10 Becquerels per banana, if you wow. want to. <laughs> there you go. All but right. I, I find that especially ironic, considering that potassium iodide is what we would consider <laughs> the treatment for radiation sickness. So. Well, yes, isn't that true? Well, it's actually prevent, prevention, the, the potassium iodine, which very teeny, teeny amounts of radioactive potassium in that. But that, what that does, it blocks the uptake of radioactive iodine to your thyroid, so it sort of saturates your thyroid, uh, and so that if, in fact, you ingest or inhale radioactive iodine, it, it won't have any place to go into your thyroid. But, you, but you're right, it is a, <laughs> sort of a, ironic that there's a tiny bit of radioactivity in these iodide pills. Almost sounds homeopathic. Um, <laughs> so in other words, our listeners, when their patients say they're scared of the radiation, we should tell them there's a greater risk in using your cell phone than going outside, <laughs> right? Well, but might be. And the cell phone risk is because of talking when you're driving, not, not so much. Exactly my point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For our listeners' sake, how do we quantify or stratify radiation risk in terms of what's dangerous in the short and long term? What level would you consider dangerous? Yeah, and that's, a, you know, of course, there's various uh, uh, levels of a concern, and we might be able to discuss uh, the, um, uh, the reactor situations uh, first. One of the concerns that I have at the Fukushima and the uh, Daiichi reactors, the concern is for the workers themselves, that they're putting themselves in relatively high uh, radiation uh, fields, and so that they've increased their annual allowable level of radiation from... If I should, can I use the unit millisievert, 20 millisieverts? And so that's the unit that they receive uh, uh, that's allowable. That would be like two rads or, or two um, uh, centigrade uh, in other units. They're allowed 20, but because they're emergency workers, they're allowed to get up to 250 uh, millisieverts. 
each year from these natural sources, you know, the bananas and the radon and the uh, bricks and the soil and the cosmic rays, each year we get three millisieverts per year to give sort of a benchmark, a feeling uh, from natural sources. And medical radiation, our CTs and our PET scans and these other exposures that we have in medicine, that gives us a little more than three millisieverts on average to our population. So each year, you and I, on average, we get six millisieverts. The the, uh, Fukushima uh, workers are trying to hook up the electricity and and, uh, cool the reactors they are now getting close to their limit of 250 uh, millisieverts. It's not been a large number of them. It's been about 17. But by doing so, they've increased their risk, their lifetime risk of developing cancer by about 2%, about 2% at that level. That's, that's a, it's not a level that you'll cause radiation sickness, but it's a level that you will increase your risk of cancer. What happens at, and then I'll, I'll bring into what, what happens at higher levels, and then I'll get down to lower levels. At higher levels, such as experienced at the Chernobyl uh, reactor accident, you can become a develop radiation sickness, nausea, uh, vomiting, diarrhea, bone marrow depression. When the Chernobyl react, uh, reactor accident occurred in 1986, the reactor blew, there was no containment vessel, and the fire burned for seven days, releasing radioactivity into the environment. It was a terrible environmental contamination. The firemen and the local medical crews that came in to try to help put out the fire and and help the people there, 134 of them developed radiation sickness. They got a lot of radiation. 28 of them died in just a few months because of bone marrow depression. They tried bone marrow transplants afterwards. It was just no... They got over 4,000 uh, millisieverts of radiation, over 400 rads. Uh, you know, just it was an enormous amount of uh, whole body exposure, and they died. So there's clearly there these levels here that they're, you know, very unsafe. They can result in sickness and, uh, and death because you've knocked out all the, a lot of the good cells in the body. When we go down to the lower levels, though, then, in fact, what the risk is, you're not killing cells, you're mutating them and changing them, and you're increasing your risk of developing a cancer uh, later on in life. And so then you say, well, where can we detect health effects? So that, that's the other sort of a benchmark. In the, in the studies of the atomic bomb survivors and other medically exposed populations, when you get below 150 millisieverts, 15 rads, you have a difficult time detecting any health effect. It's not saying that they're not there, but they're so low compared to the normal occurrence that we have in our population. There's no conclusive data is what you're saying. There's pretty conclusive data. that you get below there, you can't. You're exactly right. You can't be really conclusive. And this is just earlier this month, I was in Hiroshima and uh, reviewing the study of our atomic bomb survivors, which provides so much information about what the health risks are from uh, radiation. And in this large-scale study that's still ongoing from uh, 1945, uh, when it gets below 150, there's suggestions of risk, but not conclusive evidence. And so for protection purposes... Uh, in setting standards and guidelines. We assume that there is a risk, and we set guidelines and standards accordingly, but it's hard to detect uh, what the actual 
you know, risk might be. We would love to go on to this forever, but on a live show, I hate to have to cut you off, Dr. Boyce. I guess the bottom line for our listeners, our physicians, is to tell their patients not to worry. Oh, that's exactly right. Not to worry about any of the releases that uh, might be coming from the Japanese plant, that they're small in comparison to the normal radiation that we are experiencing in our daily lives. Yeah, well, thank you very much. We reserve the right to have you back. Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Uh, Dr. Boyce, the Scientific Director of the International Epidemiology Institute and former Chief of the Radiation Epidemiology Branch of the National Cancer Institute. Fascinating. Let's turn our attention now to an emerging healthcare need of critical importance in the wake of this disaster, and that's mental health. Helping us examine the current and future psychiatric impacts of this crisis is Dr. Suyoshi Akiyama in Tokyo, who has been working with psychiatric leaders to develop guidelines for mental health care. I spoke to Dr. Akiyama by phone earlier this week. I'm speaking today with Dr. Suyoshi Akiyama in Tokyo, Japan. Dr. Akiyama is director of the Department of Psychiatry at the Kanto Medical Center in Tokyo and a board member of the World Federation for Mental Health. In that capacity, he has been working with the Japanese Society of Neurology and Psychiatry, which has organized a special committee to deal with the recent disasters in Japan. Dr. Akiyama, it's good to have you with us. Very nice to speak with you all. Dr. Akiyama, what can you tell us about the mental health care needs and services available in Japan at this point? Currently, in some affected regions, we are still in the emergency phase. In some regions, we do not have enough medication, so... Japanese Society of Psychiatry and Neurology is identifying. Uh, we are the largest psych- organization of psychiatrists. We are counterpart of American Psychiatric Association. So from the psychiatrists, we can gather necessary information, and we identify the need for medications, and we ask the Ministry of Health to send medication free to these affected regions. So this is the emergency phase. Of course, many people in the shelters are showing normal, not pathological, but normal emotional reactions, and we need to provide basic support to them to assure that they can live all right with the support we provide. So we are still doing this kind of acute phase support to the people. Well, you touched upon normal versus pathologic responses. In the immediate aftermath of a crisis such as this, is it even possible to distinguish a possible underlying mental illness such as major depressive disorder from post-traumatic stress that most victims must be experiencing right now? Or does that even matter at this point? If you are not a magician, you cannot tell right now. But emotional reaction will subside 90% of the case in a matter of two, three, four months. But there will remain around 10% of people that symptoms do not subside. And then we need a plan to provide more special care to these people. Is this a special case because there are nuclear threats that are still ongoing? I mean, is it even possible to deliver effective psychiatric care for disaster victims at this point when they don't feel like they're in a safe environment? Very good question. You know, the earthquake and tsunami itself is an unprecedented large disaster. However, this uh, nuclear reactor issue has been putting additional stress to many people. Not only the people who experienced earthquake and tsunami in the affected region, but uh, also many people living outside of these areas. So this is one great 
stress. And another great risk we are observing is that because of nuclear reactor, we have to force people to evacuate the affected regions. The affected regions are in a Tohoku area, which is a rural area. And even before the disaster, many people want to leave these regions, and there were not many people, not many young people in these regions. When people are ordered to evacuate these regions, we might observe considerable breakdown of the communities in these regions. Then, of course, the rebuilding the community and support for the people who choose to live in these areas will be more difficult. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. This is a special edition of Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, focused on the crisis in Japan. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, alongside Dr. Michael Greenberg. And this is an interview I did earlier this week with psychiatrist Dr. Suyoshi Akiyama in Tokyo. You know, it's interesting that you mention community, because you yourself have studied and written on some of the effects of cultural differences between English and Japanese-speaking residents in Japan in context of psychiatric treatment. And community is one catchphrase that we often hear with respect to Japanese culture. How does that element of community, of harmony, of etiquette hierarchy play into psychiatric treatment for this population? Like many other things in Japan, community is emotional concept for Japanese. It is not a systematic or logical concept. We live in community we like each other, we help each other, we are one. So this is a feeling of the Japanese. Now, when this crisis happens, then there will be people who choose to remain in the region and who choose to leave. And already this distinction, this difference is causing some emotional conflict among the residents. Those who choose to remain in the region are emotionally starting to accuse people who choose to leave. What about that sense of collectivism, very unique from the American sense of individuality? How does that play into the symptoms that you are looking out for in victims of post-traumatic stress, of depression, of other psychiatric illnesses in the wake of this disaster? Because it must manifest very differently in a culture that protects a sense of collectivism versus individuality. By and large, I think collectivism is working for the mental health of the people. You may see in the TV that the people who live in the shelters often thank to people, to other people who extend help to them. And of course, many people are willing to provide whatever support they can to the affected regions. However, the weak point of the collectivism is that when you find someone is actually against you or doing some harm to you, then you may exclude that element, that group of people, from your concept of collectivism. This is a weak point. So when, for example, already TEPCO, that electric company, is made a target of a people's complaint or even hostility, and possibly in the near future, the Japanese government itself may be a target, then we may observe emotional splitting among the Japanese. What about the Japanese Society of Neurology and Psychiatry, as well as the World Federation for Mental Health that you're involved heavily in on both ends? Are they in any ways being abused or becoming a target of the people? No, we are not put as a target of people. Rather, 
we are trying to coordinate our efforts as well as possible. So not only psychiatrists, uh, we try to reach out to social workers and clinical psychologists and, of course, the affected regions, and uh, we liaise with the government. And in a massive disaster, many people want to do something, but uh, often it cannot be coordinated well. So our society is, we establish a special committee, special headquarters, and through these um, structures, uh, we try to provide good coordination as possible for our efforts. Well, speaking of coordination, I mean, I understand that Japan has had a formal system of delivering psychiatric aid in the wake of disasters ever since the Kobe earthquake in 1995. Has that response system been successfully implemented in this case, or are the psychiatric workers in Japan completely overwhelmed? Yes, we have learned some lessons from Kobe. We are doing slightly better than the earthquake in Kobe. However, there are many new, different factors, too. Kobe was one city. It was limited. Now, in this case, there are four prefectures which are affected. Kobe was one city. It was a developed city. But uh, four prefectures are affected, and uh, many areas are rural. So, in some areas, we do not have a necessary infrastructure to sustain uh, support activities. So, we need to establish basic structures in these regions. Let me uh, ask you one last question here, because we know that there is a limited number of mental health professionals in the country, especially in these four prefectures. So, my question to you is, do you think Japan will look for help from other countries down the road to deliver mental health care? My frank answer is no. If you do not speak Japanese, uh, you cannot help people. And we are already scheduling professionals from other regions to take a turn, a regular turn, to go to these regions. Typically, it is one-week visit, and then another group will go next week. We are scheduling so that we can provide basic services to these affected regions. Well, Dr. Akiyama, we wish you and your colleagues all the best. We look forward to following up with you and seeing how you are doing down the road. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Dr. Suyoshi Akiyama in Tokyo, Japan. Dr. Akiyama is director of the Department of Psychiatry at the Kanto Medical Center in Tokyo and on the board of the World Federation for Mental Health, which is working with the Japanese Society of Neurology and Psychiatry to develop protocols for dealing with the mental health effects of the disasters in Japan. Well, we just heard in that last interview, the nuclear power plant crisis in Japan is impacting not just the public safety, but also the mental health of entire communities. But what do we know about mental health as it relates specifically to radiation? To help us bridge these two ongoing threats in Japan is Dr. Evelyn Bromet. She's a psychiatric epidemiologist at Stony Brook University Medical Center in New York, and she studied the mental health effects of the Three Mile Island disaster in Chernobyl. Dr. Bromet, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Thank you very much. Dr. Bromet, um, I'll be interested in getting your thoughts about our previous guest, if you've listened in on to this point. But I, I'd first like to start by telling our listeners about how you've brought a lot of public attention to the anxiety factor that's associated with nuclear disasters. It sounds intuitive, but there's a lot going on there. And I want to know why is anxiety central to the mental health issues that you've researched here? Well, because fear of radiation of exposure is the um, among the worst fears that anybody can have. This is based on surveys asking people what are you most afraid of and ranking different things and radiation comes out at the very top. 
So after Three Mile Island and after Chernobyl, there was an enormous parallel in people's response. And the issue of health-related anxiety, which was there regardless of the actual amount of exposure that people had, um, was this almost intractable form of anxiety that, that developed and was maintained for years afterwards. Now, is this because radiation is so invisible and we're so scared of it? And that it's hard to kind of monitor? It's hard to, yeah. Well, partly because it's invisible and partly, be, I think, because our image is of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So we think of radiation exposure and we think of this horrendous explosion and all the people who died immediately and people who died shortly afterwards. And it's, it's a completely frightening thought. So I think it's both. In general, which populations have you identified as experienced the deepest emotional scars of nuclear disasters? Well, the two populations that had the deepest scars in both situations, actually, were mothers of young children because they were not only fearful about themselves, but they were scared to death that their children were going to get sick and not live a full life and die of cancer if their children were little. And if their children were older, they were afraid that, that nobody would ever want to marry them, nobody would hire them for a job, that they're basically their lives were ruined and that, that, and that their lives would be foreshortened on, on top of it. So they were the group, I think, that had to, the most complicated situation at, after both of those disasters. And the other group were some of, some, of, some of the workers who were working at these plants, particularly the people who went into Chernobyl and got a lot of exposure and survived. So not the people who died, although I can only imagine what their families have gone through since then. And I think the family members of these heroic workers should really not be forgotten, either in the Chernobyl situation or the current situation. Do you feel that the same groups of people will be at that increased risk for long-term mental health issues? Or do you feel, in, as far as Japan is concerned, that there are unique cultural circumstances there compared to these other nuclear disaster sites in the past that might affect mental health recoveries months or even years from now? You know, it's very difficult to know because I don't know that much about Japan's culture. Uh, there were no systematic studies of mental health that were done after the bombing. It just was never part of the protocol in in the uh, research that's been done looking for different types of cancers in the survivors. But uh, there was an American psychiatrist named Robert J. Lifton who went to Hiroshima and Nagasaki and interviewed other people, not the people who were enrolled in, in the protocol, but other people who survived. And he wrote a book called Death in Life where he described the same kinds of post-traumatic stress symptoms that people see in other parts of the world. So there's that. And the other issue that I think is very important is that people in different cultures express their distress differently. And in Asian cultures, from what I understand, the method of expressing distress is through bodily complaints and somatic symptoms. So... I doubt that you'll find people, as you did in Ukraine and in the United States, who will openly talk about emotional issues. But that doesn't mean that they're not experiencing them inwardly.
Right. But if we look at what you mentioned before, the nightmare scenario that a lot of people have references in history to Hiroshima and the bombings that happened in World War II, I can't think of a worse population to undergo this than those who were the victims at that period. So do you feel that that is going to be playing into mental health recoveries down the road? I think that's a hard call. It really depends. I think for the older people, absolutely it will be. But for the younger people in that part of Japan, and I understand that that, that's an area that has very few younger people, um, I actually don't know how educated they are about what happened in Japan. So to the extent that they are educated and that they've seen the images the way the rest of us have seen the images, it's hard to imagine that it wouldn't be an issue. Just as I have to say, I think about the people in Ukraine and living near Harrisburg where the Three Mile Island plants are and what they must be experiencing watching this situation unfold around the nuclear plants in Japan. It must be very difficult. Thank you, Dr. Roman, for bringing this issue up. I think it's a really important one. Thanks for joining us on Second Opinion Live. You're very welcome. We've been talking about the mental health effects of radiation with Dr. Evelyn Bromet, psychiatric epidemiologist at Stony Brook University Medical Center in New York. We have to leave it there for this edition of Second Opinion Live, but we'll continue to follow emerging issues in Japan Until next time, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. If you want to help with the Japan Relief, donate to the Red Cross, the International Medical Corps, and the Japanese Medical Society of America. They're each putting their relief funds to the best uses, so please donate today. This is a world crisis. We're all part of it. You can download a podcast of the show at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening, and we will keep all of our Japanese colleagues in our prayers. Be sure to donate, everyone.